I'm your host, Dr. K. Eyre. Bearing witness to the emotional pain and challenges of students can take its toll on educators. Under pressure to support students, teachers may be forced to confront their own social and emotional challenges. The social neuroscience of education sheds light on experiences and needs linked to the common humanity we share with our students. So how might educators care and grow themselves while attending to the needs of their students? Today we speak to Megan Marcus. Megan holds a BA in psychology from the University of California at Berkeley and master's degrees in psychology from Pepperdine University. While at Pepperdine, Megan studied under Dr. Louis Cozzolino and served as the lead researcher for his book, The Social Neuroscience of Education. Megan then completed a master's degree in education policy and management from the Harvard University. Her research with Dr. Cozzolino became the bedrock of Fuel Ed, an organization dedicated to bringing the science and practice of trauma-informed care to educators. Since 2012, Megan has passionately served the educational community as Fuel Ed's founder. Megan will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy, and myself. I hope you find these discussions helpful. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy, and I'm here, as always, with Dr. K. Hi, Kay. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. That's good. Um, so we've got Megan here from Fuel Ed. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you, Megan, for being here. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here with you. No, it's great. We're excited about our chat today. Um, look, we might dive right into it. Um, so we'll start with the question we have for everyone. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this is a podcast for educators. So we wanted to start by asking you about your experience about where you went to school, um, primary and high school, and how it's maybe influenced the work you do today. Great, thank you. Um, so what, how I, sorry, I'm just pausing for a second. You asked about my, my early schooling though, not like my more graduate schooling that formed Fuel Ed. Oh, that, that's fine. You can talk about either really, that's okay. okay. Okay, sorry. And you said that that kind of stuff can be edited. I won't like tend to do that after every question, but I just wanted to clarify. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Whatever you're comfortable with talking about. Okay, great. Thank you for that question. Yes, my um, schooling certainly did influence the direction that I took professionally. My first professional aim when I was a little girl was to be a teacher because a teacher that I loved so much um, and provided so much care for me, and I had the chance to be with her. For two years in a row, which allowed us to form such a safe and secure relationship. Um, but later in life, I sort of thought, uh, because of my interest in human development and relationships, 
and psychology that it would make sense for me to be a psychotherapist. And so I studied at UC Berkeley and received an undergrad degree in psychology and was 99% sure that I would follow up from there to get a, a degree in clinical psychology. But all of that changed when I had an amazing opportunity to work with a professor on this book called The Social Neuroscience of Education by Dr. Lou Casalino. And, and at the same time, I was earning my master's in, in psychology from Pepperdine University in the States. And essentially, this book explored the science behind why it is that relationships drive learning and the implications of this for classrooms, schools, districts, teachers, school leaders, all of these people who are involved in education, what does it mean when we know from a, a scientific perspective that it is relationships that drive learning? And so because I was at the same time that I was working on the book, going to all these classes on counseling and psychotherapy and learning the skills to be a counselor, I came to realize, wow, there's actually a lot of parallels between these two fields, both teaching and therapy. Um, are really about human development, both center on relationships, but a distinct difference between them is that educators are prepared to be content with the content knowledge with the instructional skills and not the relationship skills needed to essentially be most effective at their job. Whereas uh, psychotherapists, clinicians, counselors, so much of their training is focused on relationship skills and in addition to relationship skills, unpacking their own identities, their own trauma and doing their healing. And so I thought, well, there's a great opportunity here for us to bridge or translate some of the best practices and professional development from this very similarly interpersonal field, um, that of counseling and psychotherapy for practical use for educators. So we could really solve that gap in educator preparation and equip educators with the emotional intelligence, the interpersonal skills and the self-awareness needed to build relationships that change lives and can heal trauma. Sounds like you're so well situated to bring those two worlds together. It's something that we can and I try to do by working together, but it sounds like you've had the background in both those areas in education, neuroscience and psychology, Megan. And we're certainly big fans of Professor Cozzolino's work. So we're excited to hear more about um, your work with him. Um, so could you explain to us how um, some of that work you've done um, about social neuroscience in education, how it kind of feeds into the fuel-ed philosophy and practice? Great question. Thank you. Yeah, so the book itself really explored on a, a really broad level the concept uh, concepts from interpersonal neurobiology about how the brain is a social organ, it's wired to connect, how our earliest relationships shape who we are and the ways in which that can kind of play out in the classroom or school. But where I got kind of more honed and focused with Fuled is when I realized, well, if, if schools can be almost this distribution channel for secure attachments, then what do teachers need in order to be secure attachment figures? And so that's really where the work of FUELED lives. We essentially have developed a program that blends counseling psychology, developmental psychology, interpersonal neurobiology into practical use for educators to really grow their knowledge of the science of attachment, of trauma, to grow their skills necessary to build secure relationships, whether those skills are 
empathic listening or mirroring, um, genuine or congruent communication. Um, and finally, what I think is really the sort of like the holy grail for all educators is the self-awareness of relationships because as you all probably are aware from being you know, experts in, in this area as well, we as adults can only build as secure of a relationships with children or anyone in our lives to the degree to which we experience that. So, you know, a large percent of us never had secure attachments in our childhood. We perhaps have experienced our own forms of, uh, of, of trauma of not feeling um, safe or secure in our, in, in our early relationships. And if we never had that, we just are going to naturally build relationships with others that are insecure. The really exciting thing is that you can change your attachment style. You can grow into being more secure through the experience of reflection and relationship. And that earned secure attachment is what essentially in, will enable educators to build secure relationships with children, with adults, to build secure school cultures, um, which is why a lot of our program focuses on helping educators unpack their own stuff, their triggers, their attachment style, understanding, and um, getting, uh, doing sense-making around their own uh, early childhood experiences as a means to be better equipped to build relationships with others. Yeah, that's so much to unpack there. And it's really interesting, I think, the kind of, um, you know, skills you're building in educators. One of the questions I had, Megan, just from your experience with the program, you know, from a very early on, I think it's a real mind shift for teachers to see themselves as, you know, quote unquote, an attachment sort of figure or someone who provides that sort of comfort or co-regulation or meets the, those sort of needs in the children. What have you found um, kind of challenging or what opportunities have you found in kind of changing that mindset with teachers to enable them to think of someone, think of themselves as someone who meets those needs in children and not just delivers the curriculum? Such a great question. But what we find oftentimes when educators go through our training is actually this big sense of relief and feeling seen because so many educators go into the profession to change lives and to really build relationships with students that have the power to change lives. I think that's what attracts a large majority of educators into the profession, but then they enter their trainings and all of a sudden it's like, okay, where's the handbook on how to change lives? Where's the handbook on how to build relationships? It's missing. And then they end up entering the school environment and they end up drowning in the very thing that attracted them to the field, the relationships, the emotions, the students, their own, and they're feeling out of their depth. And so educators quickly go to, you know, what's wrong with me is sort of a place of shame. I'm, maybe I'm not up for this. Maybe I'm not good enough. Or the shame is turned outward to the students. Like, let's try to control them and get their behavior right. Um, so I think when educators come through our training, it's sort of this um, frame change where suddenly they can say, yes, someone's seeing what I'm experiencing every day, that this profession is relational. Uh, I do think that's one one reaction that we get when educators are exposed to this. And then in terms of the challenges, I think the two biggest challenges are sort of the established norms in the profession that um, are really built on behavioralism. These ideas that, you know, in, at least in the States, folks, edu uh, American educators are told, don't smile until Christmas, you know, make sure that you have that really tough 
exterior. Don't let them see you. Don't let them know you. And what we know from the literature on, um, you know, on, on the power of relationships and learning is that showing yourself as a human person, as a vulnerable whole person is actually huge in terms of building that intimacy and relationship. And so sort of these myths and expectations and norms that are built on behavioralism in schools is one huge barrier. And then I think the other is just the way in which schools are set up right now. It can sometimes be almost frustrating for educators to hear build relationships, build relationships, and then go back into their settings uh, where there's no time and space carved out uh, in the structure of the school and the practices of the school for them to meet their own needs um, as whole people and certainly not to meet their students' needs as whole people. So I think that is a huge challenge for the field. Um, we need to not only build the capacity and the skills of the educators to to execute on this kind of new definition of what an educator can and should be, but we need the systems that they're living in to mirror that as well, to empower them to have the time and space for relationship building. Um, I'm sure Kay has lots of thoughts about norms that guide teacher development and um, how we think about ourselves in the roles. Um, I'll, I'll throw it over to Kay in a minute. I, I wanted to get your thoughts uh, Megan, on you know how you drive some of those mind shift changes in terms of the principles of the field program itself. Are there some key principles that sort of drive this sort of mind shift change amongst educators? I I think something that we've stumbled upon in our own research when we watch the change process as it unfolds for educators is, is less about a principle that creates the mind shift, but a practice. And so what, what we often see happening um, is educators come into the training and it's actually through the experience of learning about attachment and applying that to themselves, that they begin to develop greater theory of mind, greater appreciation for other people's, not just their perspective, right? A student comes to me, they're distressed, I'm better able to recognize their emotion and mirror that, certainly yes. But it's suddenly this big aha moment to realize we're all walking around with our own stories. And um, there's this iceberg of a his personal history that I had, and I never knew that actually was in impacting me still. And if I have this, how much more so for my students um, who've experienced vo uh, high volumes of trauma um, or the staff. And so I think they've just developed greater levels of compassion and curiosity because they, they go through that journey for themselves. And I think that's a really interesting finding um, because when they begin to do that, it not only helps the relationships they have with others, but they can begin to care for themselves a lot more effectively as well, which is so huge to combating teacher burnout and turnover. Fantastic. Thank you, Megan. I'll throw it over the cave. Any questions or comments? Yes, yeah, it's, fa it's fascinating. I, I, when I listen to um, experts as well, like yourself, Megan, it's, it's a bit like when people do research and the results come out and you think, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Why didn't we think of that before? <laughs> and I'm just thinking of it from a, a, a university point of view where you talked about, you know, it's the passion for relationships and helping people, which gets our students at university to enrol in the first place because this is what they want to do. They want to make a difference. But it's that 
that is often the um, their undoing, um, and and that's what they feel that they can't cope with. And I'm thinking from a behaviour lecturer's point of view that even the titles of our units or our subjects that we present to our students, that might be a tiny little step in getting the system to acknowledge how important this learning is just by changing the title. You know, um, I cringe when I see our units that are called behaviour management still. Mm. You know, whereas if we could just make that tiny little start making that tiny little shift in that systemic world where perhaps the titles of those were, you know, all about relationships and just little things like that just to start shifting the mindset from our graduates that are new to the profession so that it becomes something that is just the way we think about things. You know, because I think, yeah, anyway, it was just that's what's sparked a whole sort of train of thought for me from how do we make a start making little changes in the systemic world and the policy and the practice. And it might be that we can just start that change of thinking by maybe some of the labels we use for our undergraduates. I love that. I think that's so so right on because it is about making those changes in small and large ways that's ultimately necessary to create the systemic change for this work. Hmm. That's great. Megan, I wanted to unpack a little bit what you were saying about building the teacher's theory of mind and um, you know helping them think through their own um, attachment styles even perhaps. Can you tell us a little bit about this idea of like an earned secure attachment um, and what that means for educators? Absolutely, yeah. So as I mentioned and alluded to a little bit earlier, attachment styles really speak to um, the, that are formed essentially from our earliest childhood relationships. Uh, when we have relationships where we have the ability to feel secure, to be safe, soothed and seen, um, someone in our life, a consistent, caring, responsive uh, person who is able to attune to us, give us kind of safe haven, give us protection, we come to learn that uh, we're worthy of love and belonging, we get us the sense of self-esteem, that the world is a safe place to explore, and that people can be trusted and I can open myself up to others. And it also develops our ability to self-regulate because we learn that through experiences of um, another person who cares for us, helping us calm and regulate. Those are all the beautiful things of secure attachment, but a lot of us don't necessarily have that experience. We, we might not have had a secure um, caregivers who were able to attune to us for various reasons. And so what happens essentially is an insecure attachment style develops, which influences your ability to uh, trust others and to really have a sense of um, a sense of self-worth or a sense of feeling defective, a sense of shame that you carry around with you. And all of these things are basically patterns that persist in all of our relationships and we engage with them as this template for our lives. Um, this invisible template that gets activated and reactivated over and over again in different places, sometimes innocuous uh, triggers can kind of bring us back to those 
feelings of a lack of safety and a need to protect ourselves. So all of that, of course, is going to naturally impact an educator if they are, have an insecure attachment style. It's going to be harder for them to build relationships with students, harder for them to build relationships um, and have strong working relationships on their teams. Um, the good news is, as I mentioned before, is that we can actually change our attachment styles at any point in the lifespan. And researchers have coined the term for folks who essentially have early experiences with insecure attachment figures, but later in life, when they're kind of evaluated through this interesting process um, that kind of assesses your attachment style, wow, I'm now I'm secure, so what happened? How did that change take place? And what the researchers have found, what really sets these individuals apart, what enables them to earn that secure attachment later in life is that they've had the opportunity to unpack their past and make sense of it, uh, develop what the literature calls a coherent narrative, a story essentially about their history and about the ways their caregivers were there for them and not there for them. And when we have that coherent narrative and when we've had the opportunity to experience a subsequent secure relationship, maybe with a partner, maybe with a coach, a mentor, a friend, often with a teacher, then those experiences basically create the pathway uh, for healing and uh, essentially our brain gets rewired through that. Um, and so that's what we hope for all educators, essentially, if, if you haven't had that early experience with security of attachment, to find someone who can be your secure attachment figure now and to do the self-work of unpacking and digging into your past in order to develop that earned secure attachment. Yeah, I, I was thinking about how um, being in a stressful classroom in itself would um, perhaps, you know, bring out some of those kind of frailties and attachment styles within yourself um, as a teacher, I think. And well, one of the things I think in trauma-informed practice is this real openness to kind of engage in both personal and professional development, it seems like at the same time. And, and I think that could be kind of confronting for some educators who, who might not have necessarily signed up for that. I was just curious about your thoughts about that, Megan, in your experience with the program about, you know, how, how teachers deal with that and how kind of confronted they feel about it. That's such a great question. Yeah, I do think that there sometimes is that reaction and it's not just because I didn't sign up for this, but I think it's this feeling of fear of failure. Like, and I would understand if I was an educator working in a system not set up to do this and all of a sudden being asked to quote unquote, add one more thing to my plate. And the reason I'm saying in air quotes, put one more thing on the plate is in actuality, it's, it's not another thing on the plate, it's the plate itself, building relationships, but I can understand from the perspective of an educator of what an impossibility it would feel like. How am I expected to be a counselor for students? I'm not a counselor, I'm here to teach. And we don't think that teachers should be counselors, but we think that they can, uh, counselors or therapists, but we do think that they can and should have a therapeutic presence and that schools can be therapeutic spaces. Um, the thing that you mentioned before about wow, classrooms, I can imagine it'd be like minefields for uh, educators triggers and kind of going, going back to those old patterns in our attachment styles of insecurity. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, thinking about the parallels between therapists and, and teachers, it's, um, I have a lot of empathy and um, just so much respect for educators because a therapist is always 
for the most part, unless it's a group therapy, they're dealing one-on-one. So they have their own attachment style, their own history in the room, and they have their clients attachment style and their history in the room. But an educator, they have their own and then, you know, 20, 30 students. Uh, and that's just one period. <laughs> so um, you're absolutely right that there's so much more potential for that. Um, but I also think that's just all the more reason why educators need the support and that their training and support is aligned with the realities. We can't just say, well, this isn't a thing. Your personal life and your personal triggers shouldn't be a part of this. They are. They are for all of us as humans. But the thing is, it's just simply less of a job hazard for a a banker or a grocery store clerk than it is for an educator who deals day to day in relationships. They're going to be triggered. And we have to help educators know what that means for them, how to work through it, and how to ultimately be there for students in a way that can be trauma-informed, sensitive, and attuned, um, even with the histories that we all carry. Yeah, I, I like how you said job has it. I think for, for teachers as opposed to other professions. And I think if you spoke to any manager in, in any kind of sector, you know, you'd realize what they deal with most of the time is relationships. and how people are getting along with each other and with the people they're trying to serve. So I think education is perhaps well served with people like yourself um, discussing these ideas um, with them. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, how you see the the nuts and bolts of being a secure attachment figure. You talked about this idea of safe, secure, soothed and sane. what does that look like in the classroom, Megan? And how might that look like? Uh, how might it be different between primary and secondary school? That's a great question. So there's a whole slew of traits that make up a secure attachment figure. And then of course, there's a slew of traits that make up an insecure attachment figure. And I think both are really worthy concepts to play with. Um, we talked about, as, I, as, as you mentioned, um, feeling seen. So an educator's ability to really see through the behavior, to understand the, the perspective, the emotions, the needs going on for the student is really, really huge. To be able to provide a holding space for that and an empathic listening ear for that is a really huge component of being a secure attachment figure. Another element of being a secure attachment figure is consistency and responsiveness, Um, that you can trust that I'm here for you today and I'm going to be here for you tomorrow and that I'm going to behave in this way today and I'm going to behave in that way tomorrow. And we're not talking about perfection or someone being a robot and never making mistakes, but being a consistent presence in someone's life that, that one can count on is a big part of being a secure attachment figure. Um, and of course, the responsiveness goes with the, the attunement and the, and the empathy, as I mentioned before. You, you want someone who um, is going to not only notice when you're feeling down or needing something, but be able to take action to meet your needs and feel like uh, you can trust them to do that type of thing. Another really great element of being a secure attachment figure that um, is something I think a lot about is autonomy. A secure attachment figure provides opportunities for autonomy Um, for their students. And I think so much of um, oftentimes behavioralism and the structures in school does go against this. How can we control students as opposed to giving them the trust to be able to flourish and uh, move towards greater um, independence. And so on the flip side of that, you know, there's some behaviors from an insecure attachment figure lens that I think are just quite common in schools. 
um, shaming students when they don't kind of meet your uh, expectations as opposed to stating your own like needs or feelings directly it would be the more secure uh, route to go about like quote unquote managing behavior um, through relationship essentially. And another key one there is also being really indirect in your own um, communication. I think educators, I think most of us, to be honest, aren't in the practice of being honest and clear about what we're feeling and what we're needing. And certainly I think there's a tendency not to wanna to do that with children. Um, being honest and real about your own feelings is a secure attachment figure behavior because if we're not upfront about what we're feeling, it will just come out sideways. And so that's what you see happening with insecure attachment figure behavior, um, really much more indirect ways of, of dealing with your own emotions, whether that's suppressing it or kind of escalating to like more aggressive ways of communicating or passive aggressive ways of communicating. Uh, so just a few examples. And in terms of the age groups, I think um, so much about um, building attachment is about attunement. So there's certainly different practices that I would imagine would be useful for different ages, but every student in every class, every culture is so, so different, which is why it really comes down to growing the educator's ability and capacity for greater levels of attunement, regardless of who you're in relationship with. That's fantastic. Um, I'll throw it over to Kay um, in a minute. Um, I, I was curious about your thoughts about um, teachers responding to those sort of ideas by saying, you know, it's it's not quite as easy as having just one child in the room. You're asking me to be attuned to, you know, up to 15, 20 children in the room. That's an enormous task for us to be able to do. But what are your thoughts about that, Megan, in terms of being able to kind of be tuned in enough sort of to um, the your students in a classroom? This is where I really believe there needs to be systemic shifts in order to make this truly um, possible for educators at the level, at the scale that we, we want to see. Um, it's not fair for educators to be fighting an uphill battle with this issue. It's really incumbent upon educational leaders, such as principals and leaders at the district level, to ensure that systems are designed in a way that allows for relationships to happen and allows for them to happen in um, ways that preserve energy. So to give an example, we had some educators go through our program and they were a team, a leadership team that decided that afterwards they wanted to really put something into action. They didn't wanna just kind of have the personal transformation. They wanted to, as a team say, now that we know what we know, what do we, what, what will we change about our school to really bring these concepts to life? And what they started doing was something that sounds so simple, but it ended up being completely revolutionary for them. Um, essentially, they started these, um, uh, this the system where they would get one, have one-on-one -on -one check-ins with their school principal. And it wasn't necessarily about the work. It wasn't about their performance. It was just an opportunity for those uh, that admin team to feel heard and to feel supported. Now, naturally, when they were receiving that from their principal, they began to be more equipped to give it to others. And so that admin team then essentially scaled that like listening um, structure <laughs> for you know, lack of better words out to the teachers. 
And when that went so, so well, then they said, let's create a referral system for students so that anyone, teacher or student, can, can refer a student who seems like they need that listening ear. And uh, the teachers could then kind of triage to say, like, this student was, you know, referred by another student, this student was referred by another teacher, which of us is like in the best position to have that one-on-one -on -one with them. And they saw their school academics, the academics shot up, the, the school culture metrics shot up, the school the teacher retention metrics shot up. I mean, it was a complete turnaround. And that was the main change that they made. And so I think I, I tell that story just to indicate that it, it needs systemic changes, shifts in the way we do school and uh, large and small and practices put in place that can make schools into places that are deliberately developmental. They're places where through the daily course of work, educators have the chance to reflect and grow. And through the daily course of uh, their, their classroom and just being in the schoolhouse, students have the opportunities for relationships and safe havens with the adults in the building. Thank you, Megan. That was such a lovely example. And it's such a nice way for students to navigate kind of multi-tiered systems, you know, as opposed to just being screened with a questionnaire or some sort of, you know, impersonal metric. I think that's such a more, you know, kind of personable and relationship-based way to access high levels of support. Um, I'll throw it over to Kay to see if she had any questions or comments. I was just thinking about um, the, that, into, uh, you know, strategy that the school put into place and how sometimes the simplest, simplest strategies that aren't onerous, that don't cost a lot of money, that are people strategies, have, you know, the greatest impact. And I was also thinking about um, how important it is for that, um, like the physical contact for for children and and when you said about um, them them having time to talk to their principal, it generates the fact that everybody in the space is a community as well because if peer if children and teachers are referring, um, are, you know, referring others, then that means that we all belong to each other and we start to move out of that mentality that, well, that child's in your class, so that child's your problem. Um, mm. You know, and, and the thinking is is like a is is a group sort of way of thinking rather than um, yeah, all little individual silo types of thinking. I think that um, that would have, as you can um, comment, Megan, um, obviously huge challenges as well because while you would have that instant community um, of people where majority of teachers, I would assume, would be on board with that and, and understand the importance of that referring, I can see that you would still have your outliers um, that would not be convinced um, and it, it takes a lot of courage to, to step out of the box and say, no, this is important to us, this is what we're going to do in the face of a system that's going, what are you doing, what are you doing? Um, yeah, so just some thoughts. Thank you. 
Yes, I, I really agree. And I loved what I loved about that story, that school is that they started like quite small, you know, again, it doesn't sound so revolutionary, like a principal who listens, right? Who listens as one-on-ones with their teachers, but the ripple effect that it had, and I think it really highlights just how starved we as humans and uh, educators, certainly in the profession are for the opportunity to be seen as a whole person. It's really what drives us. We wanna be seen, we wanna be valued, we wanna feel like we belong. And it's pretty magical, the growth that happens for educators and students when we have one, just one, all it takes, one person who shows us that care, who listens to us, who believes in us and helps us feel like our experiences are real and valuable. Mm. Right. Yeah. And we're talking about systemic change, Megan. And and I think at times for, you know, leaders, educational leaders in this space who are kind of wanting to take the first steps towards being trauma-informed, there's this worry of their kind of letting go of control, <laughs> letting go of systems that have kind of said served them well in other kind of for other purposes and in a sense of um, kind of letting go of too many things and being permissive what has been your experience with that with being able to help sort of educational leaders take that first step towards putting trauma-informed practices in place I think the first step is actually counterintuitive to where Oftentimes educators, educational leaders want to go, right? Folks want to create a plan and benchmark it and have objectives and metrics. And it's all wrapped up with the scope and the sequence. But really the most transformative work that one can do to be trauma-informed is to unpack and heal from your own trauma. And I think it's a step that even folks in the trauma-informed community um, there's not enough attention on that. To be trauma, truly trauma-informed, we need to look at our own, um, our own history, our own trauma, and how that continues to play out. And the authenticity that can come through in leading from that place, in sharing more about your journey, your triggers, your attachment style, your healing, can just create this tremendous ripple effect with even without changing a single other thing. I mean, starting with that principles, go to therapy, you know, and grow personally, because that's going to be the number one thing that's going to impact your relationships with educators, which impact the culture of the school, which will impact the ways in which educators build relationships with their students and ultimately the student outcomes. Yeah, that's really fascinating hearing you say that word. We were just recently working with a school that's gone through a lot of turmoil, lots of staff turnover, and have had kind of lots of major critical incidences. And I was thinking about how you've got to heal as a school community as well, you know, acknowledge the changes that have happened, the losses and grief that's kind of accompanied that, and being able to come together as a team and as a school and a school community itself is important as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you, Megan. We've covered lots of ground here. Um, we finish up these um, podcasts with a um, question about what you're curious about in your work and what you're working on at the moment. Um, so could you share with us what you're currently curious about? Great 
question. Um, so let's see. I'm curious about how this moment in time where we are now due to COVID and the impact it's had on our world and on students and on educators and this heightened awareness that there is for the trauma that is uh, now everyone's experience um, after living through a global pandemic, um, how that heightened awareness of the need for trauma-informed education, the need for mental and emotional health and well-being supports for both students and educators, how the energy behind the moment, the energy behind the need um, can transform education for the best. That is my hope and my wish and my curiosity that we take this opportunity, not just as a, a lot of damage has been done and we need to patch it up, which is true, but let's, let's think out of the box. Let's transform the paradigm and redefine education, uh, the role of educators and the system at large. So that's my curiosity and hope. And my, what we're working on now, something really exciting is a video series that is going to be accessible to individual educators as well as schools and uh, districts uh, all over the world on empathic listening. It is the most powerful tools to unlock um, relationship and healing. And for years we've been training, doing trainings in person um, but this will be an opportunity for um, a much more scalable version of that learning that educators can take into their schools. And it concludes with a really powerful practice of teaching you how to set up in your own schools that peer network of, of support, that essentially empathic community of secure attachment figures. So really excited to launch that this year and um, to just invite more educators and educational leaders into our community through the webinars that we're regularly putting on and through our programs that are out there in the world. That's great. Thank you, Megan. I'll just throw it over to Kay for any final questions or comments. No, thank you. I think is um, um, mainly what I wanted to say, but I, I actually, I was thinking when you were talking about empathic listening and I think that things like that the resources to have as an educator are just so critical because constantly I know um, undergraduate students and also um, postgraduate students are saying yes I get all of this I've read all of this but how do I do it <laughs> I understand I should be attuned I understand I should be doing this and that and the other, I'm quite happy to do it because I'm passionate about making a difference, but I don't know how. And in yeah. the system I'm in, nobody is modelling it to me. So yeah. I'm all on my own out here trying to make sense of all of this stuff and I get it, but I just don't know how to actually do it with my 34-year-olds or my, you know, 25 science students that I see once every, you know, day. Um, so I think, thank you, Megan. I think the, and especially the online access is just absolutely critical so that people can access those resources and there's equity in being able to access those resources. So for all, all people. So thank you very much. Thank you. I just love what you said at the end there. And it's so true. There's that, the motivation, the passion, the will is there, and it's simply about bridging 
um, some of these practical resources into the field. So really great. That's great. Thank you, Megan. Was there any um, uh, resources or like contact information you'd like to share with our listeners before we finish? Yes, we would love to have you visit us at our website at www.fueledschools.org. Um, we're also on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and um, if you go to our website on the events page, we have we put on free webinars regularly. So we'd love to have you at our free webinars if you're an educational leader or an educator. And finally, we have a blog where we really uh, publish content about the science, the skills, and the self-awareness needed to build relationships. Thank you, Megan. You cut out a little bit when you were talking about the um, social media, but we'll put up all your links um, to your um, resources and website uh, on our website when we publish this. Um, so thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for all the work you do. Um, and we hope we can keep in touch. Yes, I can't wait. Thank you so much. This has really been fabulous and very inspiring. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That was Megan Marcus from Fuel Ed. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's tipbs.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.